What's up, sunshines? My name is Casey, and this is Talk Human to Me. Since Plato taught Aristotle from Darwin to Descartes, all the way through to Marx and Nietzsche, there has existed one persistent question. What does it mean to be human? While anyone worth their salt in philosophy has developed their own idea for the correct answer to this question, who's to say that the human experience of an 18th century Scottish man of the Enlightenment bears any resemblance to that of a 21st century trainer, professor, or brand owner? Humanity has done nothing but evolve from our days in the caves to doing 100 on a freeway in a self-driving car, so shouldn't what it means to exist in it change accordingly? While you might identify with Wittgenstein's idea of the world being a totality of facts and not things, or Harari's bold takes on our ability to create our own world, as an individual human being you are entitled to your own answer to the ever-present unknown of what it means to exist in this world. Every episode, I sit down with someone who comes from a different place than me in some way to learn about what being human means to them. I might not share the way they live in this world, and that's okay. I just want them to talk human to me. For this episode, I got to sit down with Michael Landsberg, longtime host of TSN's Off the Record and current host of TSN Radio's First Up. But the biggest reason I wanted to bring him on the podcast is because of his work in mental health advocacy. Michael founded the Sick Not Weak Foundation, dedicated to breaking the stigma around mental illness. Whether you watched him in his TSN days or listened to his current radio show, I promise you this episode will show you a side of the iconic Canadian sports personality you've never met before. Enjoy. Now, do you want me to answer that question? What does it mean to be human for me, Michael Landsberg, as a longtime human? I've been a human most of my life, and therefore I'm pretty qualified to answer this. You know, I, I think that I would answer that question if you asked me at the end of this interview, I might answer it differently because it's not something any of us think about. I, I would say what it means to be human is the ability to take the worst things in your life and make them into the best things in your life, to try to see the benefit of something that maybe appears to not have any benefit. And obviously for me, that relates to mental health, but also is, is to take the things that cause you pain. Uh, and almost invariably, you can use those to cause somebody else the opposite of that pain. So I think it's making do with the best that you have. And I think the, the second thing is it's finding a way to have joy in between the times when joy is impossible. So, I mean, that, that is both a mental health thing and just a life thing. From a life standpoint, we all have tragedies in our lives. You know, if you're going to live, like I hope you will live to be 92 years old, you're going to have bad things are going to happen. And the question is, will you be able to bounce back from those bad things to experience good things in between? Because you know the next bad one's coming. So if you're going to carry one bad one into the next, then there's never going to be a good time for you. I, I love that. I have a, actually have a tattoo that's like dedicated to that kind of. Get out yeah. of here. Yeah. I'm thinking because you you host this podcast, so you have a tattoo for everything. You just nah. are going to show different. Where Where is it? Uh, it's on my rib cage. It's, it's okay. my biggest it one. Um, it's not words. It's a teacup that's pouring out flowers, but it's based on the uh, Ray Bradbury quote, which is we are all cups constantly and quietly being filled. The trick is learning how to tip yourself over and let the beautiful stuff out. So it's just my reminder that no matter what comes in, try and make it something beautiful and put that back into the world. You know, I'm just going to make something up off the top of my head now to respond to that. You ready? Yeah. Space, the final frontier. 
Now that was the Ray Bradbury you're talking about, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I just want to make sure, oh my God, maybe there was a famous philosopher and I just made a fool of myself, but you know, am I allowed to swear on this? Oh, go, go oh, right yeah. ahead. Fuck off. I don't care. It's I, I'm a guest. I can do anything I want. I, I'm not going to make a fool of myself. Absolutely. Uh, by the way, my dog Wrigley, who is so ridiculously adorable, um, may bark during this. And if he does, um, I, uh, I, I don't apologize for it. That's okay. We, we like dogs on this podcast. Dogs are our favorite. You know what? One of the best things about podcasting, I, I mean, I, I think TV, if it could uh, mimic it more, is spontaneity, right? Is yeah. like you're talking to me in my house about my life. So if my dog is part of my life, then I think hearing from him is really good. Yeah, we would love to get Wrigley's opinion. So if ever yeah. hey Riggs, that was your cue, man. Yeah, we worked the whole thing out this morning. I said, when I start talking about you're in my house and you're talking to me about my life, we should hear from my dog. He was supposed to start barking. God. He'll, maybe he'll learn he'll learn later on um so how do you think you got to your kind of definition of what it means to be human i feel like it's not something that might be as common for younger people or kids to kind of see so where do you think that kind of came about i, I think i think um there's there's two halves of my answer for that um one half of my answer is just the inevitability of, in your life that you will go through tough times. And I, I'm not talking in any way about mental health now. I'm just talking about the ups and downs that you will have. I mean, you're part of a family. There's people in your family that you love and that are very important to you, I'm assuming. Uh, and um, those people, when they have tough times, they become your tough times. When they get sick, that becomes your pain. And that's unfortunately something that affects all of us. So I, I kind of learned after going through some things that the, the, the key for my life was finding ways not to linger on the bad stuff. Because if you do, you will carry that right over to the next bad stuff. So it was like, okay, I got to find a way to put that behind me. Because if I don't, where's my joy? Where's my happiness? Where's the good time in my life? And it really comes down to being a matter of can you find joy in between the crap? So that's one part of it. And the other part is, is, you know, my, my struggles with depression and the understanding of just how painful it can be. And, and the declaration that I would have made when I was at my worst, which would have been, if I ever get better, if I ever can, you know, see the light again, if I ever can, can just be me, just be me, that's it. No more, no less. Not, oh God, I wish I was taller. Oh God, I wish I was younger. Oh God, I wish I had this or that, or I was better at this or that. Nothing like that. My, my vow to myself was if I can ever be just me again, I will celebrate that every single day. And I have, I have done that, you know, like I, I've said to the people in my family on a day when I just feel average, I'll go like, literally, I mean, I'll do this all the time. And it does sound kind of weird, but it's like, oh my gosh, I feel so unbelievably, amazingly, tremendously normal. And if you have had normal taken away, then average normal feels like something extraordinary. And, you know, uh, we have this thing uh, in, with our charity, Sick Not Week, we call it the Sichter scale. And the Sichter scale is a measure of your depression. So a 10 is not euphoria because euphoria is not a natural state. A 10 out of 10 would be 
you can feel whatever comes your way. And if something really good comes your way, then you can feel euphoric. And a zero out of 10 is when you just have absolutely lost all ability to experience joy, all will to go on, just the lowest. And I, I have this saying, which at least in part, I'm making it up right now. But if you've been a two and you feel like a five, then you feel like an eight. Uh, because the contrast of coming from a two, you know, so that five where you would normally go, if if you never had experienced depression, you'd go, yeah, I don't feel that great today. You know, I don't feel bad. I don't feel that great. But, you know, if you've been a two, that five feels like an eight. That's where I got it from. Absolutely. I, I love that idea of just being able to celebrate feeling normal because, yeah, like you said, once that gets taken away, it's just when it comes back, it's... No, it's you like, understand that, right? Oh, 100%. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, this, this is you asking me questions. Just so you know, I have the ability to turn this interview around. And before you know it, you'll go, I, I, thought, I thought he was the guest. Now I feel like the guest. Uh, but you, you uh, I mean, there's something that you and I have between us that is, um, it's not unique, but it's, I was saying yesterday, because I do a video blog every day, and I was saying that um, I, for 10 straight days, I said something in a different language. And essentially, it was, if you don't speak German, then you can't understand me. And, and uh, But I said it in German. And the point was that if you haven't been depressed, then you can't understand it. You can't understand what it feels like. If you don't speak the language of depression, then no matter how hard you try, you can't understand it. And I can prove that to you. But most of all, I'm saying that because you and I speak the same language, right? Because you have been there. And there's some things that if you haven't been that you can never, ever, ever understand. You may think you do, but you don't. And I definitely think there's value in people understanding that even if you can't understand exactly what it feels like, there's still like people that can still be empathetic and still kind of be sure. there right there with you. And that is still valuable. It's just not the same as someone who speaks that language of knowing what it feels like to not be able to shower or. Oh, yeah, for sure. But you're right. I mean, there's there's usefulness to people who've never been through it. But to see here, here's the key, Casey. Cassie or Casey? Casey. <laughs> That's a joke between us. I'm, I'm not telling you now. I'm telling somebody who's who's uh, listening or watching right now. My daughter's name is Casey, and she kidded about how, you know, people will read her name. Cassie, is there a Cassie here? And the answer actually is no. But, you know, there's there's benefit to having people around you who don't understand you. But the key for them is they have to say it. They have to say, I don't understand you. Because it's it's complicated because mental illness, we've all lived with our own brains all of our lives by definition. And we've all had ups and downs. And because we use this word depression and this word anxiety, which has multi-uses to it, people sometimes think, people often think that they have been through it before but they just haven't been taken down by it because they're strong. It's like, okay, Michael and Casey, um, Casey being you, those guys must be weak because, you know, I had days when I didn't want to get out of bed and didn't want to take a shower. And I had days when I didn't want to go to work, but I never had to go to a doctor. I didn't have to go on medication. You know, I just willed myself out of it. So what you need from that person to make a difference in your life, most of all, is to say, I don't understand. I thought I did, but I don't understand. Um, yeah, no, I just think that ties in beautifully with your 
Charity's idea of sick, not weak. I think that's something that needs to be kind of perpetuated even more. So could you speak a little bit about kind of how that came about and if that links back to your idea of being human? Um, it links back to my idea of one of the responsibilities that we all have being humans, I think, is that from both a selfish and selfless standpoint, we need to use the assets that we have to make a difference in other people's lives. And when I say selfish standpoint, because it makes us better, because we feel better about ourselves. It's like, you know, when, when you give money to charity, it's a selfless act. But there is not a selfish side, but there's a benefit for you as well, right? Is that you feel like, hey, you know, I'm, I've made a difference to somebody else on this planet. So for me, it was the understanding uh, one day that, wow, I have something to offer people that I never knew would make a difference in their lives. And that something is my uh, experience with depression and anxiety and my willingness to share those experiences to the depth of my core and the fact that I have platforms because of my career available to me. And then a fourth thing, which is, you know, I'm not professional talker. That's all I know really how to do. So if you take experience with the illness, desire to um, to really share what something like depression feels like, platforms available to me, and the ability to speak and communicate, you add all that together, I have this amazing opportunity to make a difference in people's lives. And uh, I didn't know that until November, uh, uh, October of 2009. Coming out of the worst year of my life, uh, guest on Off the Record was named Steph. Stefan Richer, former, well, you would know Stefan Richer. Uh, and even if you don't nod your head like, oh, sure. He was a Montreal Canadian, pretty famous there. Anyway, he was a guest on Off the Record. And I'd never spoken about depression before, not because I was ashamed or embarrassed. This is the part where I talk really fast because the story will never, I mean, it could go on forever. And it would be amazing because of the people that are involved in this and the twists and turns. But he was a guest on Off the Record. I'd never spoken about depression before because I thought no one would care. And I thought, oh, I just read that Stefan Richer suffered from depression in the 1990s. So I said to him, would you be okay if I asked you how you're doing? And he said, oh, it's very painful. I don't like to talk about it. So I said, I get that. I don't want to cause you pain. You're our guest. I wouldn't want to cause pain anyway. But if you'll talk about it, I'll talk about it. And he said, what do you mean, you? And I told him, about my experience with depression and how I had just come off the worst year of my life and how I really understood what it's like to be living, but not alive. And something, you know, something lit up in his face, which I'm sure lights up on your face when you find that there's someone who understands you, lights up on my face when there's someone where you go, oh my gosh, like, wow, you understand me. And there's something powerful about that. So he said, yeah, let's go ahead and do it. We talked for 90 seconds tops. And the next day, I started getting emails from people, uh, mostly men, because men share um, a lot worse than women. Women have a problem sharing, but not quite as bad as men. Women will go for help uh, much more often than men will go. Uh, so I, uh, I, I started seeing these letters, and I thought, oh, my gosh, that is crazy. People said, I'm telling you something for the first time in my life. No one else knows this, but I've suffered from depression for the last 10 years or 20 years or two years. It was crazy, and that changed my life, and that gave me the opportunity to, um, to, be, to make a difference in people's lives without really having to try. 
I mean, I'm telling this story now. Does it seem like I'm working hard? You know, it's like compassion and the ability to share and the ability to impact people's lives in this regard is not a depleting resource. It's like I start the day with, with a full tank full of compassion. And when I go to sleep, I still have a full tank full of compassion. So it's not like every time you do something that you think is important that you, that you lose a little bit of it. So this was this amazing gift that I got. When I first heard about your charity and kind of just the title of it right off the bat, I was like, yes, this is amazing. So how did you decide on Sick Oh, Not I see. Weak? That was the question. Yeah. You know, I, 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 God, that was a long answer. We like you long know, answers here. Well, okay. I'm an, I'm an interviewer. <laughs> I like long answers when, when the answers are good. So uh, Sick Not Week came about, uh, about, I'm going to say 2012 when I had done some speaking about mental health, like this all came to me on this one day when I realized after Stefan Riche that I had the ability to make a difference in people's lives just by telling my story. What could be easier than that? Plus, you know, I like to talk. I like to be on stage. I like to be on camera. I like to be on microphone. I, I like this. So I found it to be a joy that I could make a difference with it. I felt more useful than I had ever felt talking about sports. I mean, let's face it. When you talk about sports, you don't do anything good for mankind or people kind, uh, but you don't do anything bad. You just, you're neutral, right? Like a lot of jobs are neutral. You know, you serve food in a restaurant. You know, it's not like you're helping mankind, even though we need food. You're still, it's neutral. And then I found out I have this. So I started speaking. And I remember I was at Mount Sinai Hospital in Toronto speaking to a group. It was like young professionals or something. And they had a speaker series. And I remember looking up because it was in a lecture hall for medical school. So all these people are sitting there. It was jammed, Casey. Oh, my God. There was like got to be 500 people in a room that's at 100. See, I made that up because I thought it made me sound really good. Um, so I, I said to them, and I literally remember saying this, and I'm now looking around the room. Look, we all know that I'm here because there is a stigma around mental health, right? We all know that you... Um, whether you're young professionals or whether you're involved in the medical field, we all know that you don't see physical illness and mental illness as being the same thing. You see mental illness as somehow being self-inflicted. I'm not saying all of you, but that's what society sees it. They see it as, as you know, a weakness. And I said, someone, please stand up, put your hand up, shout it out that you believe that, that you think that something like depression is not the same as something like cancer, that people can't help cancer, but people can help depression. Somebody say it. And some guy said, okay, I'll say it. And I said, great, thank you. You know, let's talk about this. And he said, you know, I, I, I think that I'm sure it's a bad thing, but it's not, you know, it's not like you, it's not like you die from it. It's not like, you know, something like depression, like you can't, you know, try hard and get over it. And I said, Oh, thanks for saying that. I mean, I wasn't like, I mean, I would never be mad at anyone for saying the stigma because hearing it is incredibly powerful. So I said, Look, you know, I disagree with you on one fundamental thing, I am sick. And you have to believe that what I have is a sickness, because if you don't, then there's no chance in this conversation that we'll find some common ground. I'm sick, but I'm not weak. 
In fact, one of the strongest things that I have done in my life is get up in the morning, go to host the show that I was hosting, um, to greet people, to host a show, to leave, to come home. That is one of the strongest things I've ever done. So I will not accept the fact that you perceive mental illness as a weakness. And it just kind of stuck, sick, not weak, sick, not weak. And it kind of really gets to the heart of the stigma. If people saw mental illness as a sickness, but not a weakness, then the stigma would disappear. But no one wants to be seen as weak. Nobody, right? Yeah. Nobody wants people to go, wow, that guy's weak. So if you see yourself as being weak because of your illness, then there's a pretty good chance you're not going to go for help. You're not going to tell anyone. You're just going to live in misery and make the people around you miserable. So that's the start of Sick Not Weak. I that I love that, especially because it reminds me of something that I used to try and explain it to other people. Is it written like, on your body anywhere? Like no, tattooed? this one's not. Maybe in the future. Um, we'll find out. Uh, but no, I used to explain it to people that it's a flaw in my chemistry, not in my character. Um, just because it's the easiest way of explaining it. It's, it's a chemical imbalance and you're not, you're never going to be able to see that unless you stick my brain under some form of medical one day, imaging thing. One day. See, you know, I, I noticed this when you and I were talking uh, after Ryerson and when you said your first, you, you did um, a quick interview at the beginning. Right. And I noticed that, there was a, a sense of, it may not be enlightenment because I could be wrong. If you call someone who thinks the same way that you think as being enlightened, there's a certain ar arrogance to that, right? It's like, oh my gosh, Casey, you're a genius. You think the way I think, which would be like me saying I'm a genius. But I, I, I noticed many things uh, in what you said that maybe I've never said them exactly the same way, but really captured what I think is the spirit of mental illness. And that is that... It's a sickness, it's an imbalance, whatever, whatever it will eventually come down to when we can actually quantify it, when you can take someone's blood and go, wow, oh my gosh, your depression levels whew, through the roof, then the stigma will disappear because people will be able to go, oh my gosh, look at that number. It was in his blood. But right now, there's no way to prove it. And people are skeptical of what you can't prove. And if it was a real illness in their minds, you'd be able to show it on an x-ray or a CT scan or an MRI or a blood test or a biopsy. Yeah. I never even thought of that way as the inability to quantify something is really kind of the root of things not being believed and things not being taken seriously. Wow. Everything. I, I did a, a documentary uh, called darkness and hope depression sports in me. Um, we, uh, we won an Emmy award for it. That was a lie. We did not win an Emmy award, but man, how cool would that be? But it was, uh, it was a really neat experience for me because uh, I, I guess one of the best things about it was I went around to promote it, right? And people, instead of introducing me as TSN sports host or host of Off the Record or sports broadcaster, documentary filmmaker. Oh my God, it was like, I've never felt smarter. I've never felt cooler in my life. Uh, and one of the lines uh, that I remember writing for that was that it was like, um, you can't biopsy it. You can't take a blood test. You can't take an x-ray. You have to believe that what we're saying is true. 
Because if, if, if I was to say to you, uh, you know, hey, Casey, tell me about your illness. Uh, you, you can prove in any way the existence of your illness, right? Everything is anecdotal. Everything is, oh, well, you know, I wake up in the morning and this is what I feel. But you, you can't prove any of that. And I think we live in a world where people need proof. So at that time, when we can prove it, I think things will change. Do you think that all at all goes back to kind of how we are as humans, that we rely so heavily on numbers and we're so hesitant to trust people at their word. You know, here, here's, uh, yes. But I think also that there's, there's something in human nature when it comes to illnesses that um, we have a tendency to want to not necessarily minimize them, but we want to believe that we have control over our lives enough to avoid them. So think about this. If you, uh, I mean, no one wants depression. No one wants to, you know, to, to be suicidal. No one wants, no, nobody wants that. So it's much easier if you're that person, that external person, to make the assumption that this is somehow a weakness, that somehow you let down your guard or you stopped appreciating good things in your life or you're born in a bad mood or whatever. That's a way easier explanation to accept than it is to say this is a crippling and debilitating disease that can hit anybody at any time. And it could... It could rule tomorrow you could start the fall into the deep dark hole and this would be to the person who believes this stigma and wants to believe that it's not it's not a chemical imbalance it's just you being weak and their perception is they are strong uh i am weak therefore they will never get like this and then there's wishful thinking when it comes to the people we care about right you know if if you have one of the you know i'm sure your parents have been through a really 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 tough time with you right because i mean i'm a parent with kids my son has pretty severe anxiety uh and that has been certainly caused a bumpy road and when he was when he was pretty young i would say from a uh, until he until he got to be an adult, uh, anxiety in a lot of ways ruled his life because it limited the things that he would do. And as a parent, you know, you you look for easy explanations. Like you don't want to say, "Oh, my kid's got an illness that could affect him the rest of his life." You know, my kid has an illness like depression that you know he or she could end up taking their own life. You you don't want it to be that way because you love them. Uh, so you insert wishful thinking into it. So it, it's this is what I'm sure people have said to you, Casey, you seem like you're doing a lot better. Yeah, like it seems like, oh my gosh, like, yeah, you know, I saw you smiling before and are you doing better? And you might go, no, I'm not doing better. No, 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 no. You may not realize it, but I think you're doing a lot better. And parents say that to their kids because they love their kids and because they want that to be true. And I am guilty of that with, with my daughter who's never had mental health issues, but she had uh, eye issues, um, serious eye issues. And I would say things to her like, oh, you seem like you're seeing a lot better. And she would say no. And I'd say, yeah, but you know, and I would just drive her crazy. And I, I was totally out of control. Like I would tell myself, don't do that. Don't bring that up. Don't suggest that. Don't do that. And then I would be going, oh, I'm doing that. I heard my, I hear my own voice. So um, that's, 
particularly relevant when it comes to mental health, the idea that we insert wishful thinking into it. I think that's really interesting that you can speak from a perspective of both someone who has gone through it and then the parental perspective of catching yourself kind of flip-flopping the line that like you had drawn as someone yes. who, who deals with it. Yeah. And, you know, my son, Corey, um, in, was lucky that he had a parent that had been through it, right? So I never fell into the traps that are laid out for us the wishful thinking one, you know, I never thought, oh, well, you know, he seems like he's happier, therefore he must be happier, you know, always knew because I've worn the mask myself that that you can fake it. Uh, I, I, you know, I always knew that, um, that there were no easy battles, but also I always knew that his anxieties couldn't be, um, couldn't be minimized by saying things like, oh, you know, I mean, both he and I have this terrible fear of throwing up, like it's called emetophobia. And like when I was a kid, it, it, it ran my life. And then when he was four years old, so it's not like I taught him this. It's not like he watched me freaking out. I never mentioned it to him. I was aware of the fact that I didn't want to pass it to him. And then one day he goes, uh, am I going to barf? And I was like, well, no. Do you feel sick? He goes, how would I know if I feel sick? And that's an impossible question to answer. How would I know if I feel sick? Well, you, you, you'd feel sick in your stomach. Well, how do I know that I'm not? So we had this like, like this circle that we kept coming back to, but I understood it. So I was kind of able to break that circle by not taking it any further and realizing my explanation to him has to be a, in a totally different area. You can't say, don't worry about it because nobody with anxiety ever found it beneficial to hear, don't worry about it, or what are you worrying about? Or you're driving yourself crazy. So I think, you know, those of us with the with this illness, whether it's depression or anxiety or any other thing, can be really useful to people by um, by really using our own brains as the litmus test. It's like, would that help me? Would that have helped me? And the answer, if it's no, God, no, then that's a good approach to start how you're going to help someone. My gosh, the amount of time someone has told me, oh, just don't worry about it. And it's like, I have clinical anxiety. That's not an option. Yeah, it, it's, it's true. It, you know, it's, it really is. I mean, people sometimes get mad at this, but it really is like, oh, you know, saying to somebody with diabetes, you know, like the blood sugar, man, come on. Like, don't, don't get out of control. Like, you know, you got to control that shit, man. What are you doing? Like your blood sugar's through the roof. Come on. You know, it kind of is the same thing, right? You know, if I could control it, do you think anybody wants to be anxious? Do you think there's a single person in the world that wants, because I find there's a physical manifestation of my anxiety, which is a body shake. And like, does anybody want to be like that? You know, no. So you have to make the assumption that telling people, you know, don't be anxious probably isn't going to do it. Yeah. I love that when, whenever people do the side-by-side -side of what you're telling someone with mental illness versus what you would tell someone with a physical illness, when you do it that way, it sounds so ridiculous, but no one ever thinks of that when Nobody they're that. spewing the whole like, oh, don't worry about it. Or like, oh, just like, don't you be sad. Why? It's the stigma. It's the perception that somehow your anxiety is self-inflicted that somehow you have brought it upon yourself 
and your your weakness prevents you from pushing it to the side. You know, other people can be scared about things and they can be convinced not to be scared, right? But that's not what anxiety is. Anxiety is not this rational fear where we've gone, you know, like no one's going to say if you're in a plane and the plane is at 30,000 feet and all of a sudden the nose is down and you're at 25,000 feet after 10 seconds and you go, oh my God, we're crashing. No one's going to be able to go, hey, you know what? Don't worry, right? I'm like, why do you always get like this? I mean, some worries are fears that are based on reality, but that's totally different than the inability to rationalize your way through something that makes you anxious. And sometimes we're just anxious for no reason. Like we're just, I call it this electrical current sometimes that I feel like is, is going through my body where it's like, I, 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 I can't, I don't know why I'm feeling this way. It's not like I'm, I'm fretting over something that's going on in my life. I'm just, anxious. Yeah, exactly. Sometimes I joke, I'm like, I'm anxious because I have nothing to be anxious about. So my body is like, well, you should be scared of something at this point. So we're just going to do it this way. Yeah, that's definitely an accurate representation. Um, Do you find that through your work over the past, uh, I guess you said six not weeks started around like 2009. So a decade ish. Do you find that the stigma has changed at all? Has it gotten better? Has it kind of shifted? Where have you seen that kind of curve headed. Okay, I, I first of all, my general answer to that is, I don't know, just meaning it's above my pay grade, right? Like, yeah, I mean, for the sure. reduction in stigma would, would be something that would be really hard, needs to be quantified to officially have an answer to that. Really hard to qualify, quantify. I, I think what we've done is that without a doubt, there's situations where we've reduced the stigma. So I'm not going to say that there hasn't been any benefit. It's certainly part of the conversation now in a way that, you know, never was part of the conversation. I mean, the places that I get asked to go speak would never have asked me to speak, um, you know, in the past. It would never have been relevant, um, you know, in conservative companies like banks to have somebody talking about mental health. That was the last thing that they would talk about. I mean, George Cope told me, talk about a good name drop, uh, he's the guy that was the CEO and president of, uh, of Bell, and he created Bell Let's Talk Day. And he said when, when he went to pitch the idea of creating a mental health initiative. He said he thought the board would probably turn him down because mental health, this was 11 years ago, something like that. Mental illness was was dirty, right? It was kind of like, we don't want to be associated with that. And he said uh, it was unanimous, yes, within like 10 seconds because everybody related to it. Everybody had a story that they had not shared with anyone, but they knew that there was a value to it. But he said, you know, at CAMH, when they put the Bell logo up beside CAMH, it was the first time in Canada or the United States that a major company had actually joined, had, had, um, had stood beside anything related to mental illness. Uh, and so that's changed for sure. It's become in vogue to talk about mental health. It's become in vogue to say, I'm really concerned about the mental health of my people. But unfortunately, we've also um, made people ashamed of them believing the stigma, thinking that if we shame them, they'll they'll believe otherwise, right? And that I don't know if that works. I think what happens is they go underground. 
So the um, it's not popular to to get up in a crowd where a guy like me or a woman like you is speaking about mental health and to say, ah, oh, this is all bullshit. Come on, come on, Casey. You know, you and your oh, you know, I have trouble getting out in the morning. You know, suck it up. Look, you got a good life. You know, you came from a good home. You get good pictures on your wall. You're going to Ryerson. You know, like come on, like that's not popular. So people don't say it. That doesn't mean they don't think it, right? No, for sure. I I catch myself sometimes thinking about what are other people going to think that they're not going to say out loud because that's always a fear. That's why I always say that whenever people are like, what superpower would you have if you could have anything? I say I would love to read people's minds because I don't trust anyone. Um, but yeah, that's definitely like a big, a big thing that comes up. One of the questions that I ask often is, how many of you uh, in the audience, the 500 of you that work for this mining company, Cameco, I've spoken to them, how many of you believe that uh, the stigma is still a problem today in 2020? And they all put up their hands. How many of you think you're part of the problem? One person puts up their hand. So, I, so it's like, okay, you all know it's a problem but virtually all of you but one don't think that you're part of the problem. So this must be the most forward-thinking group in the history of the planet because statistically there's no chance that if it's still a problem that you could have 500 people in one room and none of them were part of the problem. How many people are race uh, how many people think racism is still a problem in 2020? Everybody puts up their hand. Okay. How many of you think that you're racist? Nobody? No, nobody? So the whole world is racist, but not you. That would be a mic drop moment um, if we weren't in virtual Zoom land. Except when they ruin it and everyone puts up their hand for racism. And I go, wait a second here. This is so twisted. So you're putting up your hand because you want to prove me wrong or you want to show that you're more open with people, but you're saying that you're a racist. So, um, you know, as a Jewish person, should I be worried here? You know, like, uh, is anti-Semitism your thing? Or do you just not like people of a different color? Humor is, uh, you know, humor is a really effective way to, to make whatever you're saying much more tolerable. You know, yeah. it's like the, the, you know, what can you bring to a speech about mental health? And obviously you can, you have one currency that you can trade in. And that currency is that you're, you understand it from the inside out and that you can say things that will make people feel understood. Like it's hugely powerful. Um, but you also have uh, a sense of humor, which I have seen you know, in this conversation, that if you consciously say, I'm going to get up on that stage and I'm going to be me, whatever that means, whatever you are, you're going to try to be as genuine you as you can be. Then all of a sudden now you've gone from sort of a dull, perhaps useful speech on mental health to something that people would go, man, yeah, that was interesting. Yeah. I love using humor to, to undercut my pain. It's, it's become my personality trait. Um, so when do you think that that came about for you? Have you always kind of been someone that turned to humor? Yes. To... Fair enough. <laughs> yeah, but I wasn't always able to show it. Like I, I was looking at a picture uh, of me in grade five. And I remember thinking, so somebody who I went to uh, school with sent me this picture last week it was the class picture, you know, where 
you know, the teacher is standing there, the teacher that looks like he wants to kill himself, like he went, oh my God, I can't believe I became a teacher. My life has come down to this. Uh, and, you know, the kid's in rows and the girls are usually in the front row or in the back row because they're taller at that point, right? So we all know this image. And there's this shot of me and I had this like big smile on my face and I thought, wow, that was grade five. I was 10 years old. And I I had this, this real sort of bounce in my step in confidence and somehow I lost that and it wasn't until I went into broadcasting that I that I got it back I mean part of the reason why I got it back was was just confidence and meeting my wife um, certainly helped me in an area socially that um, I had very little confidence in but just you know broadcasting brought me out and uh, you know the person that I am now if uh, the people I went to high school with you know I remember we had a high school reunion um, a while ago now and it was like oh my god I can't believe like you went into broadcasting you were the last person that we thought you know would want to be sort of the center of attention so I I, I kind of always had it in me but I found it difficult to show who I was um, because when you show who you are you take a risk right you know the risk is that people aren't going to like it and I think uh, it took broadcasting to bring me out and make allow me to be the person that I want to be, which is a huge thing. Um, just to speak briefly to all of my sport media friends who are hopefully listening, do you find that going into broadcasting when you first started, you had to be a little bit more kind of conventional and then you were able to be yourself kind of as your reputation grew? Or do you find that you built you built your reputation off of being completely off. You know, I, I think that I think that uh, it's a very valid question. And it's I was thinking about this the other day. I was thinking, you know, here's the thing about me. I, I have I have I believe not I believe I know I've done it my way. And that has uh, has been great. Because if you have to assume a role, that's tiring. You know, when you when you go, OK, well, you know, I can't I can't be me. You know, I got to be what I think they want me to be. You know, I've kind of always had the attitude, which is, you know, this is me and fuck you if you don't like it. And that has, you know, has limited me to some extent that I've always been the, the quirky guy who people liked and people didn't like, like no way that I, I would ever get a job um, doing what Ron McLean does, right? Because when you're on Hockey Night in Canada, the goal is to get everybody in the country to want to watch. Uh, and they don't care if people like Ron McLean. All they care about is don't dislike him. And I've always been kind of like, fuck, I'm not for everyone. And if you don't like me, I'm good with that because the thing that you don't like about me, someone else is going to like about me. The worst thing that I could ever have heard over the course of my career was... I, I, I don't know him. You know, I watch TSN. Uh, I, yeah, I, I guess I know him. I'd much rather, I'd much rather have somebody say, uh, yeah, that guy on, uh, on SportsCenter or whatever, or off the record or whatever I was doing. Oh, fucking hate that guy. I'd rather hear that than I, I don't, I don't know who he is. So I think at the beginning, uh, a little bit, I felt into, I fell into this sort of narrower box um, but I think me, without even being conscious about it, me just came out. Now, that's the grammatically very strong work on my part. Me just came out. But I, you know, my advice to people is, uh, is find out who you are, find out how you can best do it, 
and be the best you. You know, Casey, there's there's a best you out there. And if you want to be the best someone else, you may be successful in your life, but you'll never feel the same joy that you get where you go, wow, that, that like that, that was me. Holy shit. Like that was fun because I got to be me. And I think that that broadcasting is filled with people who've never acknowledged that. Like I made a decision when I was still at Ryerson, when I was working uh, doing weekend sports at News Talk 1010, I made a decision that I would never write something for broadcast that was not uniquely mine. Meaning I would never say three games in the NBA in preseason play last night, the Charlotte Hornets took on the Toronto Raptors and the Raptors got an excellent performance from, you know, uh, I don't have to go any further, but that's like anyone could say that, right? Like yeah. that's not me, but what could I say that was me? And I, I've kind of been true to that. I've never written anything that I thought, okay, I just took the easy way out. How did you figure out that you were okay if people didn't like you? Because I know a lot of us can talk and say that, um, yes. you know what, it's okay, like, fuck it if you don't like me. But then actually doing that and actually kind of living through that lens becomes a whole other ballgame. So how did you get to that point? I think I got used to it. Like, like right from the first time I started broadcasting my first job was at well at news talk 1010 which was then cfrb 1010 uh then i went to chfi radio and uh i knew that there were people there that didn't like me like and they didn't like this sort of cocky swagger that i had on the air and that carried over uh, to some extent to not liking me off the air but I thought, okay, well, you know, this is this is who I am, and um, it it didn't really bother me at that time. And then when I got into television at TSN, I I realized that, oh my God, people see me in a totally different way than I see me, than I am. Like there was this, I was accused of being arrogant every day of my professional life. And yet the people that know me would say, the absolute least arrogant person that you're going to ever meet. Don't mistake confidence for arrogance. Don't mistake um, not an act, but an exuberance on television uh, or on radio for being arrogance. It's like arrogance is when you think you're better than other people. Uh, I've never acted like that, but people perceive that. And I always thought, okay, well, that just goes with being me. And if they want to see me that way, that's okay. But also if they want to see me that way, then this there's there's kind of a fine line between what does that mean and I don't understand it. If people want to see me as arrogant, which again, like I hear all the time, my response to them is, you're right. And it's like, well, what do you mean you're right? You think you're arrogant? No, I don't. But if you think I am, in the reality in your head, you're right. We all watch people on television or doing different things or listen to them and we draw conclusions, right? We say, I like that person that you can't tell me, no, you, you, you're wrong. You, you, um, I don't like that person. You, that person can't say you're wrong. You have to like me. It's like, if you see me in a way that, that bothers you, then how can I argue with it? And if you say that to people, all of a sudden, you own their asses. I have so many stories of people accusing me of that and going, yeah, you know what? You're right. I could see that sometimes, you know, I do 
you know, I do pretend like I know it all, but that's just because in sports, no one wants to see someone going, oh, wow, I see your side of the story, but here's mine. It's like, fuck that. You know, it, it's, it's, it's about the energy and the scrap. So uh, I have learned to embrace it and that everything that one person may not like in me, somebody else may like me. And the only thing that I would be insulted about would be competence. If someone said, oh, God, that guy is like terrible broadcaster, that would, re that, that would bother me. But because that's not, in, in my mind at least, the same as saying, oh, you know, I, I don't like his style. Um, so to bring it back to, to kind of yourself, um, who are you? Who am I? I am, so, so that's a question that the approach that you take to it is an indication a lot about who you are. So if you say, who are you to someone? And that person says, um, I am, if you would ask me this question a few years ago, if I had said, I am the host of Off the Record on TSN, that would be an indication to you the person that asked the question and the person that watched the answer, that that's how I define myself, right? As you know, I'm a TV host. And I'm, my whole goal in my career was to never define myself as being my career. My whole goal was to define myself as being, you know, a husband, a father, a son, a friend, when I used to have friends, and now nobody gets to see anyone. So uh, that's out. But, you know, I see myself as a guy who's got a, when he feels okay, has a bounce in his step, and who is put on this planet to try to make a difference in other people's lives, whether to make them feel better about themselves because of how I can be as a friend, or make them feel better as themselves, uh, as I can talk about mental health. That's kind of how I see myself. And, you know, my career has given me opportunities to learn how to do that better, of course, and it's given me platforms, but it's not who I am. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point saying that you never wanted to define yourself by your career because i think now oh, wrigley Riggs, hey buddy how are you i think how we answer the question who are you it's it's like how have you chosen to address that is a real giveaway as to kind of what you're made of what are your values what are your priorities I think that's especially valid now as we live, or at least like my age group and, and my year at university, we're growing up in a culture that is so work centric and it's like toxic hustle culture is, is a whole thing that I could get into, but that's for a different podcast episode. Um, but it's become almost trendy to define yourself by your career or trendy to define yourself by your work habits. And to hear someone who's so established say that like from the outset, you didn't want to define yourself by your career. I think that's like really valuable and really interesting. Well, let's put it this way. Also, you know, uh, I did off the record for 17 and a half years and for 17 and a half years, I prepared myself for not doing the show because, you know, no matter what you do, I mean, eventually, you know, there's a pretty good chance that it's going to end. Right. And if you define yourself by what you're doing, what happens that day when it ends? And I challenged myself all along to say, okay, you know, like, are you defining yourself by your job? Are you listening to what people say when they introduce you? 
And I, I walked out of there um, for the last show I did and um, on to the next adventure was this, which was, I mean, this charity, but also a radio show. And there was not one moment where I lamented not doing a TV show. It was like, okay, I'm done. I, I don't have the choice. It's not like I chose to do this. TV, uh, sports is, is changing. Uh, you know, I had this amazing opportunity to do something amazing, but I'm on to the next. And if you allow yourself to be defined by the job you have and that job is taken away, you're fucked. Absolutely. As someone who has on more than one occasion pigeonholed my entire identity down to one characteristic when that characteristic gets taken away. But just because you were saying how long off the record was on the air for, I still remember being in elementary school, like grade four or five, and I'd come home from a bad day and I'd be home alone. So I would get a bowl of ice cream and I would just watch your show. And I was like, I want to, I didn't think I was thinking that I wanted to do what you were doing because at that point I still had very different career aspirations, but it's just a very distinct memory of you were kind of like my after school routine. Um, so to also hear that you've kind of like pivoted and are now taking on new things without lamenting the loss, I think that's really interesting. And for me, it's a really cool for, full circle moment, but that's not the point. That's cool uh, for me too, the fact that that you said that. But there's not, see, the value of what you just said though is that somebody else, I, I have to tell you this this quick story, but um, because my my bosses knew that I was wired differently than than other people who were on air at TSN, meaning I was less vulnerable to criticism. You know, I understood the whole hey, you know, it doesn't matter if you like me, it doesn't matter if you hate me, as long as you watch me, right? Yeah. So they thought enough of me that they were doing a focus group for off the record, and you know how focus groups work. Yeah. Uh, you know, so you got a boardroom and you got 25 people. They don't know why they're there. Um, they're all around this table and you've got someone who leads this focus group and they're all hooked up to these things where if they like something, they turn it this way. If they hear something they don't like. So they're reacting through the whole thing. So um, the guy goes out there. So I'm sitting across the glass with, I don't know, probably 10 people from TSN, right? Um, and these are all, all, all senior people, right? So they go, um, the leader, this is like, honestly, one of the funniest moments of my life. The leader goes, okay, uh, I thank you all for coming. And, uh, you know, I just want you to be open and honest and don't hold anything back. That's why we're paying you for today. We're here to talk about TSN and some TSN personalities. And a guy goes like this. He goes, it better not be that fucking asshole Landsberg because I fucking hate that guy before anything else. And we're all in the room. Uh, and now, of course, everybody's looking at me and it's like, oh, my God, this could be the worst moment for me or the best moment. I'm going to choose best moment. And the guy muttered through the whole thing when he said, well, actually, it is about Michael and we just want to go. He goes, oh, and I said, can I go out there? Right. Uh, and that, that's against the rules. Like for for people, it's supposed to be anonymous. Right. I said, I, I just want to go out there and have a fun conversation with the guy. And I was like, no, you can't do that. That's amazing. I like yeah. how you just chose like, this is going to be worst or best and let's go with best. I, I also like how that kind of links back to you, your initial answer to the question of what it means to be human saying it's about finding joy in those less joyous spaces yeah. and, and between those. Um, do you have like a, a strategy for finding joy? Do you have like techniques? Wow, that sounds so therapy-esque which was not how that was supposed to come out, but here we are. 
Not really. Uh, I, I think my my strategy is to, I mean, I have strategies coping with depression um, for sure, but my, my strategy for finding joy is to lower my expectations on what I need to find joy, right? So if I'm having an average day, uh, I need to celebrate that. And if you celebrate the average, then um, you're going to be doing more celebrating than you say, okay, well, I have to feel perfect and have something amazing happen to me. You know, I call it the basic joy test. And the basic joy test is name something in your life that brings you joy that you've never maybe even said to anybody else, right? It's just this little thing that you like, right? You know, and for me, it's that sip a cup of coffee in the morning, right? Where if I feel like myself or anything close, and I take a sip of that coffee. It's like, oh, this is this is this is great. I, I love that. I love that taste. I love that smell. Um, that's the basic joy test for me. And when I take that sip of coffee, if I don't feel that basic joy, then that's then I know I'm not me. And at that point, I say, okay, I am going to celebrate me um, when I return. Yeah, I think that's um, a beautiful way to kind of put a bow on everything. Um, so after that whole discussion, I'm going to ask you one more time and one sentence answer. What does it mean to be human? Yeah, just so you know, there's run on sentences. So, you know, I've got a loophole here. It means to treasure and value every second that you're given and to try to find something that you can celebrate, even though it's not obvious to you what that thing might be at a certain time. Amazing. That was okay, awesome. Booyah. Sorry, I had to celebrate. Yeah. I, you know, I was happy with my answer. 